I'm going to age myself, but I entered the job market in the worst recession in 80 years. So I wasn't exactly fighting off the job offers, but I had this epiphany of like, dude, just because I'm not a professional hockey player doesn't mean I'm not a professional. And I happen to choose a career and, and your listeners happen to choose a career where if you approach your sales job the way a professional athlete approaches their job, you can literally make as much money as a professional athlete. everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Tahoe Alemo. Today, uh, I've got a great interview with JR Butler. JR and I uh, actually met through going to similar small uh, uh, colleges that are out in, uh, in, in the Boston area. He went to Holy Cross, I went to Stonehill College. Uh, and JR has had a phenomenal career. Currently, he is the CEO and founder of The Shift Group which essentially helps connect former athletes and veterans to uh, full-time sales jobs in the tech world. Uh, before that, he was a CRO at Pillar. Before that, he was a VP of Enterprise Strategy at Turbonomic, formerly VM Turbo. Uh, he was a BDR and he's a few other jobs uh, before that. So we talk about JR's uh, rise playing D1 hockey, uh, having one of the biggest upsets in college hockey history, getting into sales, what the grind was like for him. Uh, we talked a little bit about his struggle with addiction. We touched on that. We talked about what he's doing with the shift group and helping uh, af- former athletes and military veterans getting into sales. So JR, uh, he's all all gas, no breaks is what he calls it. He's got a great energy and I love the conversation with him. So without further ado, let me get into my conversation with JR Butler. Let's go. All right, next up, we got Mr. J.R. Butler, Mr. All Gas, No Breaks, joining the podcast. What's up, man? Good morning. Good morning, Tom. Great to get connected, buddy. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, me too, man. Me too. Um, let's just, we'll, we'll get into your whole story, and, and into your, but most of your LinkedIn posts have uh, hashtag All Gas, No Breaks. So I got to just start there. What's, what's, uh, is that something that goes back to like the hockey days or is that you just make that up on the fly or what, what's the significance of that? It's uh, it has multiple it has multiple meetings actually. Um, I have a I have a tattoo on my uh, on my rib cage that says "How you do anything is how you do everything." Um, and like mm. I've always you know I've always gone hard you know whatever it is. Um, <laughs> and I believe like I, and I do believe there's so much in that saying uh, that like you know messy house messy you know, messy sales force, messy, messy sales meetings, right? Like I, I really do think how you kind of treat everything is is how you're going to, you know, it's it's just going to play out no matter what you're doing. So like, you know, all gas, no breaks is really about, you know, pushing forward and, and going all in to whatever you're doing, right? Like, you know, if you're going to do something, anything worth doing is worth doing, right? So that's part of it. Um, and then there's also, uh, you know, I always talk about, the people that I've worked with that have been most successful uh, in my career, um, they have a, a certain characteristic that I think is critical and it's, and I call it the give a shit muscle. So the gas is also an acronym for giving a shit, like really caring about, you know, how you uh, present yourself, how you go into a meeting prepared. Um, and when you're talking to, you know, whether it's a prospect or a candidate or whatever, like really caring about their outcomes and what they're trying to achieve. 
So it has, like I said, it has multiple meetings. And I, I, it, I, I started using it actually when I led sales teams. Um, that was I used to sign off every email with hashtag all gas no break. So I brought it into when I started posting on LinkedIn when I started my own company. Um, I started using it, and you know now everybody everybody knows me that way. So uh, long history there. I like it. It's a good uh, it's a good moniker. Uh, so a, a lot of what you talk about and what we're, what you're doing with the Shift Group revolves around you know, athletes revolves around, you know, uh, in particular hockey. I know that's your, your background for the listeners. Uh, JR and I both went to small, uh, relatively small Massachusetts liberal arts schools. I actually think they're sister schools, Stonehill college and, and Holy cross, which is very, uh, kind of random, but talk to me a little bit. I know you played, uh, hockey there. D one, uh, tell me a little bit about the hockey journey, you know, growing up, probably just grinding all the time. I think your brother was a, he went pro as well. So tell me a little bit about like the come up of, of the hockey journey for you. Well, my, so my father was a high school hockey coach in Massachusetts for 25 years. Um, so he started coaching. He started coaching when he was like 17. He went up to Canada, played junior hockey, and then came back to our home, to his hometown, Marlboro, where I grew up and took over the high school program when he was like, 21 years old, which is the same year that he he had me. Um, so like I literally grew up in a high school hockey locker room, which anybody that knows high school hockey players, that's pretty scary. Um, and it explains a lot about kind of who I am. Uh, but it also like hockey is literally in my blood. It's in my family's blood. Both my brothers played college hockey. One of my brothers, like you said, played in the NHL and the Olympics. Um, but like that was, you know, that was a huge part of my life. It was the biggest part of my life, you know, from five years old to 25 years old, kind of waking up and and we all we all had the dream of playing at the professional level. Um, I personally had the dream of playing at the division one level was a huge goal for me. I wasn't as naturally gifted um, as my middle brother. Um, so I had to work really, really hard to get to, to get to that point where I could play division one college hockey. So I spent all my free time, um, shooting pucks in our driveway. My dad used to say a hundred pucks a day keeps the doctors away. So I used to shoot 400 pucks a day. Um, I used to do push-ups, sit-ups, squats, sprints. Um, you know, I had this whole like structure of, you know, from May to, to May to October that I would do every single day. Um, and, and we also played multiple sports. So I was a football player and I played baseball in the spring and we would get off the ice, but at the end of the day, like in terms of dry land and like working out, it was 100% focused on hockey. Um, I got the opportunity uh, my freshman year to go to a high school in Massachusetts called Cushing Academy. Um, one of the most storied hockey programs in the country uh, tons of NHL players. Uh, it was chance of a lifetime, changed my life. Uh, and then because of that, largely because of that, I got to go play in college and I got to play actually locally at, at Holy Cross, where I, basically where I grew up. Um, and it's funny because I played my first youth hockey game when I was like six years old at Holy Cross's rink. So it was kind of a cool, like, you know, finishing point. And the best, the best part of my career, hands down, was our sophomore year. We had a really good team, great leadership. Uh, we won our conference. And just like in basketball, if you win your conference, you get an automatic bid 
to an NCAA regional. Uh, hockey's a little smaller of a sport than basketball, so only 16 teams go to the bracket. Um, so, And we were the 16th seed. We played the number one seed, Minnesota Gophers. They had about 11 future NHL players on, on their team. We had zero. Um, we had a lot of sales guys and, and doctors and lawyers. Um, and we beat them, which was, uh, it, it, it to this day, you know, it's like 18 years later, it's still considered the biggest upset in college hockey. So that was definitely the the pinnacle of my my hockey career. Uh, and hockey just was a huge part of my life. Like, you know, every, almost every memory I have, I owe to the experience I had in hockey. Man, and that must have been, uh, where, wherever you, where was that game played against Minnesota? Was that in Minnesota? Or No, no. So I'm glad you asked that. It was at Ralph Engelstad Arena in North Dakota. Um, so the Sioux, were the, the Sioux were hosting the regional, the Fighting Sioux. Um, and we played the 4 p.m. game on Thursday night and North Dakota was playing Michigan in the 7 PM game. When we walked into the, onto the ice at 4 PM, the entire rink was packed and in purple because North Dakota fans, North Dakota and Minnesota are like the Red Sox and the Yankees. They hate each other. So um, the North Dakota fans sold out our bookstore literally. And we basically had a home game against the Gophers. And to this day, I go to the frozen four like every couple of years and I'll always wear Holy cross gear. And I always get approached by either North Dakota fans or Minnesota fans. Uh, Minnesota fans hate seeing me, uh, but North Dakota fans will give me a big hug. They'll, you know, they'll talk about the game. Like, you know, college hockey is, has crazy fans. So it's, 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 it's pretty cool. The legacy that we left. Yeah, that's awesome. I was at the reason I was asked that question too, is like, I could only imagine after an upset like that, like the, the team, I mean, wherever Bismarck, North Dakota, wherever that, wherever that rink was, you guys were tearing up that town. Uh, I don't think there's probably too much to do out there, but man, I could only imagine like, you know, just, just the vibes in the locker room after a game like that is just like, you, you can't even, you can't even describe it. Uh, totally. We had, we had to play another game. We played North Dakota on Saturday night. We lost oh, to them. Nice. It was kind of a let, it was, it was a letdown, but I, I will tell you that night, Saturday night, we went out in North Dakota and it was, <laughs> it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. I almost missed the bus, the bus ride to the plane on Sunday morning. My coach was not happy with me, uh, but it was unbelievable. And I always say if, if things don't work out for me, I can just move to North Dakota and I'll get a, I'll get a job anywhere I want. So I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, man. Uh, so, uh, after, after your Holy cross career, um, did you try to, did you try like actively to go pro? Like, were you trying out with teams or did you, once you graduated, you, you kind of, you know, came to the conclusion that it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I knew, I knew I wasn't going to play professional hockey. Um, I, I kind of figured that out. Like, you know, I, I'm coming from Cushing, going to Holy Cross. I was, ex- I had like big expectations because uh, Holy Cross was like kind of like in a lower level division one league. But like, as soon as I showed up, I'm like, wow, these kids are unreal. Like I, I knew I wasn't kind of set out for the professional route. Like my brother was. Yeah. Okay. And so what's the, what's the transition to sales look like for you? Um, I would describe it as a trip and a fall, I think is the right way to, the right way to say it. Uh, complete accident. Um, had no idea what I wanted to do, what I was going to be good at. At the time that I got my first sales job, 
I was just starting the process of figuring out how to study for the LSAT to go to law school um, with the liberal, Holy Cross liberal arts, right? So I didn't, I was a sociology major with a minor in art history and sign language. And I, I'm going to age myself, but I entered the job market in the worst recession in 80 years. So I wasn't exactly fighting off the job offers. And I met a guy uh, through men's league hockey who was like, you know, I told him, I'm like, he's like, so what are you doing now? And I'm, and I was old because of hockey. I was like almost 24, 25 years old. And I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go live in Florida in the fall, study for the LSAT, take it in December and then try to get into law school. Um, and he was, he basically laughed in my face, literally. He's like, really? He's like, you want to be a lawyer? He's like, you're going to, you're going to take on more debt that you, and you already have debt from Holy Cross. You're going to go study again for two years, which doesn't seem like you're too excited about. And then you're going to, you know, basically trade your time for money for 10 years before you have any shot at becoming like a managing partner or something like that. He's like, you're not going to make a lot of money until you're like 35 years old. And I was like, okay, I, I never thought of that. I just thought like lawyers make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So then, and this is like the beginning of digital transformation, right? Like the iPhone had just came, literally just came out and it was putting a, a, an immense amount of pressure on all these companies and all these different industries to start investing in technology to match the digital experience that their consumers were having in their and their employees were having in their personal lives, right? Like now all of a sudden you could click a button, watch a TV show, listen to a song, get a ride anywhere with Uber. And he was like, dude, tech is tech is gonna take off and you don't need to be technical to sell it. Like you just need to have a good personality, be gritty, be resilient, and be intellectually curious. And like, and uh, I'll teach you how to talk to customers and learn what their business problems are. And the tech, this tech stuff, you'll figure out as you go. But he's like, I, he goes, I bet you can make 300 grand within, within two years. And I was like, all right, let's try it. <laughs> and then, so you, so a lot of people that I talk to, they have a very diverse backgrounds and most of them would say, you know, I, I tripped and fell into sales in some capacity. Now I, I have to imagine like based on, what you said the first 10 minutes of this conversation of all gas, no breaks, your work ethic, 400 pucks a day. I have to imagine you showed up to the sales floor and you were cold calling like a maniac and like you were top of the leaderboard and you, you got off to a hot start. Is that a fair assumption? Uh, ish. Yeah, it was, it was a different time, Tom, right? Like, you know, we didn't have like these unreal technology stacks that we have now, like LinkedIn existed, but it had like less than 5 million people on it. Um, and, you know, the calling technology, all it was like, we had a, a voice over IP phone and thought we were ahead of the curve. My CRM was this technology called FileMaker Pro, which none of your listeners will know what that is. <laughs> um, it was, it was, it was dicey. And like, I didn't step, I stepped into an organization that had never had an outbound uh, salesperson. It was a, it was a reseller organization. So it was like um, all of the sales reps there had like worked at a vendor. They had worked at like EMC or Cisco or HP. And then they came over to the partner side and, and took their Rolodex with them and then became the partner of choice for the, their old customers that they used to sell stuff to. And the owner of the company was like, you know, we need to start getting into organically getting into new companies, not just buying sales reps with Rolodexes. Um, 
and uh, there, it was just me. So I was at the top of the leaderboard, but only because it was only me. Yeah. But like in terms of like onboarding and, and ramping and things like I had to figure it out. Like that was kind of, you know, he was like, I was like, you know, I didn't even understand why EMC needed us to sell their technology. I'm like, why, why doesn't EMC just sell it themselves? He's like, dude, look at our website and figure it out. You know, here's all our customers. You talk about these customers when you call people. So, you know, the first like month or two was a lot of stumbling, a lot of messing up. I got hung up on a lot. Um, I, I distinctly remember my first cold call. Um, the guy said, we don't, he's literally goes, I don't talk to telemarketers and hung up on my face. And I called him back and I'm like, dude, I was like, listen, I'm not a telemarketer. I go, I just paid like 160 grand to go to college. I go, this is what my company does. I think we're pretty good at it because here's five of our customers that are in your industry. All I'm asking for is for you to spend 15 minutes with one of our experts and see if we might be a fit for you. And he's like, I appreciate you calling back. Let's, let's do it. And I got a meeting. I think my next meeting after that was like four weeks though. So it was kind of, it was a trick, but yeah, I mean, I think I had to work hard, very, very hard, very long hours because I had to figure it out myself, but I, I appreciated that experience. I appreciate it to this day. Man. See, that's like, that's the thing. No one taught you to do that. Or maybe they, maybe people taught you that uh, mentality, you know, for the first 25 years of your life that led to that. But, you know, 99% of salespeople or, or a very high percentage of salespeople, they make their first cold call. That's a scary thing. They hang up on you. That's a scary thing. Uh, and then you're like, all right, I'm going to cross that guy off. I'm never going to call him again. And you're, it sounds like your natural instinct was like, no, fuck that. Like I'm calling this guy back and whether he takes a meeting or not, like it's, it's maybe just the principle of like, I'm not a telemarketer. I just, you know, I'm already in debt six figures for this college education. And I want to, you know, I want to speak my mind about it. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, and it's also like the stakes, like to me, people do get nervous about it. And they feel like the stakes are high. But in my mind, I'm like, right, what's the worst case scenario? The guy's going to hang up on me again. Who cares? I don't care if somebody had like, he doesn't know who I am. I'm not going to run into him, you know, at the mall, like whatever. I'm just going to call him back. So like, I think a lot of it was, um, you know, uh, just not just being like so arrogant or not arrogant, but like ignorant of like the impact that I could have by making a bad phone call. Like, I, 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 it just didn't connect with me. So I, the stakes, I didn't feel like the stakes were that high. So I, I was comfortable messing up really early on because, and, and I think a lot of that was because of my background. Yeah. Uh, so you land at a company called VM Turbo, later renamed Turbonomic. Um, at the time I was in, or when I was in Boston, uh, you guys were like one of the fastest growing companies in Boston, maybe the, maybe the fastest. Yep. And I know you were there for a number of years, climbed up the ranks to uh, eventually get to be the VP of, of enterprise sales. But talk to me a little bit about just the experience of working at such a fast growth company and just like freaking riding the wave and climbing up, you know, like every single year getting promotions. And uh, I'm sure it was an absolute grind, but I'd love to hear just about that journey. Uh, it was awesome, man. It, it was uh, the best experience I've ever had in my career. I I sincerely believe that early stage, fast growth companies are the best place to start your career. People talk about going to a big company with structure and onboarding, but 
I think that the fully depends on your personality. Uh, but if, if growth is like a driver for you, um, then you've got to go to a growth company, right? Um, and we were a growth company. We had 27 at one point, 27 quarters in a row of year over year growth, which is like, that's pretty close to the 40 quarters, which is like really the, the, the record from a publicly traded company. Um, and to your point, right, when you grow the way that we did, where, you know, when a, when a, when a small company grows, you've got, you know, you start, like when I started there, there was like, there was three teams, you know, five reps a team, and we split the country in thirds. And then you, you grow, you hit your targets, you double the growth year over year. And it's like, you got to double the sales team because there's, there's so much territory to go after in a, in a small company that, or a bigger company that they don't grow that way. When you're a smaller company and you grow that way, you've got, now you need three more leaders. The three new leaders are not going to be go, go and get hired from outside the organization. They're going to be brought up from the sales reps that, you know, one of those five sales reps on those three teams. So immediately, you know, you, you have a growth opportunity in six to nine months at a company that grows that quickly. Um, and I think like the biggest lesson that I learned from there was like being, being adaptable is the most important characteristic you can have because, you know, and everybody will tell you this, that worked at the company, we were growing very quickly. We were closing a lot of deals but we were learning, we were failing a lot. Like we were failing, we were failing way more than we were winning. And that's when you learn. So like, as an example, our messaging in, in the six years that I was there, like how we positioned the technology, how we talked about it, what category we said we were, it changed probably eight to eight to 12 times in the six or seven years that I was there. Right. So like you're going from quarter to quarter and you're, you're, you're using a different deck than you did last quarter. And you're telling a different story and you're asking different questions because we were just trying to create a scalable forecastable model. Um, so like that, that was a huge learning lesson hiring. I learned a lot about hiring because we hired so many people. Like we had quarters where we hired a hundred BDRs. Um, so, so it's just like the pace of change is so fast when a company is growing like that, that you have no choice but to learn a lot and fail a lot. Um, and I think it, it, what it does is it squashes down like a decade of experience into like two years, right? So like quarters, quarters are really like years and years are really like four or five years because so much happens and you're learning so much. Um, and it's just, a, it's, it's a really cool experience. And if you can do that, you can go work at a big company and, you know, somebody that's, that's, it's harder to go big company to small company. It's much easier to go small company to big company. So I just think from a growth perspective, from a learning perspective, you can't beat that type of environment we had at Turbo. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, I haven't told you this, but actually my first ever, so I, I graduated school in 2015, I was working in Boston okay. and my first ever face-to-face -face sales meeting outside of selling Cutco knives in college was at VM Turbo's office. My boss, uh, I already told you, but my boss was married to a sales leader over there and uh, he got us in and we had to sit down on like a Friday afternoon with the CMO and a bunch of other marketing people and my head of sales came. And uh, I, I mean, I don't think I've ever been more scared in my life. I, I brought the sandwiches. I didn't say another word for the whole hour, but, but I do remember 
like walking through your guys' sales floor and there was like an energy there. And there was like a, if I remember, I think there was like a scoreboard, like TV or something with, you know, whoever, I don't know what it was, making the most calls or setting the most meetings or whatever it was. But um, there was a big gong, I think, uh, there. And so there's just like, man, I was like, this is, people are, people are grinding here. Like this is, this has a lot of energy. Uh, is that, am I remembering that like at all correctly? Oh, dude, you could feel it when you walked, when you walked in the, it was wide open, like, you know, bullpen style, Yeah. you know, at one point, right around that, when you came in, we were making like 11 to 12,000 cold calls a day out of that office on Boylston street. It was, it was awesome. Um, and like that open sales floor concept, I think, you know, if you look at the roster of people that work the Turbonomic, there's like upwards of 20 plus people that are now VPs of sales and CROs. Um, because again, like the, the growth accelerates learning, but also that like being in person and like hearing your peers, hearing people constantly, like it's again, a, a force of learning where it's like learning through osmosis. You hear someone make a great call, you steal that from them. You hear someone make a horrible call and you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. Right. So like mm -hmm. the amount of, of, of learning was awesome. And then the transparency on performance, I think is why we had the exit that we had. Like you knew exactly where you stood. There was no gray area, that dashboard, that scoreboard that you talk about, it tracked every single metric of every single BDR and AE in the floor from pipeline all the way to the metric of, of call activity all time. Like we knew there was no hiding. We, nobody hid there. Um, and it was, it was, it created a really, really, it was a hard culture. We had high attrition, uh, but the people that survived are really, really special salespeople. Yeah. A lot of accountability in a role like that. Um, so just for the people, what was the, um, you got acquired, right? What was the, what yeah. was the number on that? Uh, Ish. around $2 billion. Um, IBM bought us. Yeah. Not a bad, not a bad outcome. No, okay. uh, no. And then you, then you, you went to, uh, you took a CRO job for it's like a year or eighteen months or two years. Uh, and two then, years, yeah. Um, and then at the beginning of last year, if I'm not mistaken, beginning of 2022 is when you left there uh, to start the Shift Group. So um, I'd love to just hear a little bit about that transition. Um, you know, really, just what is the Shift Group and why did you decide to leave the, you know, role of being a sales leader CRO to start your own company? I look back at my sales career. I love sales. Like I love selling. I love helping companies solve problems. I love like really digging in and building champions and like seeing the outcomes that you can drive for an organization, right? All the reasons that your listeners and, and I'm sure you love sales. But my my favorite part of my career was helping young people develop and become sales professionals and have the epiphany that I had at a young age where I'm like, you know, I, I, I was sour and, and mad that I didn't become a professional hockey player, especially when my brother was, you know, playing in the NHL. Like there was a lot of, uh, you know, emotional challenges there. I think I've grown out of them, but, but I had this epiphany of like, dude, just cause I'm not a professional hockey player doesn't mean I'm not a professional. And I happen to choose a career and, and your listeners happen to choose a career where if you approach your sales job, the way you do, the way a professional athlete approaches their job, you can literally make as much money as a professional athlete, right? So why wouldn't you approach it with the same professionalism 
that someone in the NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball does, if you can make that much money, right? Um, and, and teaching people to think like that and approach their job like that and then see the outcomes that they could drive. I had multiple reps that worked for me in their 20s that W2'd seven figures multiple years in a row. And that that feeling of like somebody that I led, you know, banging the gong that you talked about gave me much more joy than banging the gong myself. Um, so that, that kind of like realization coupled with the fact that I spent 15 years in sales and because of my network in hockey, I helped literally probably over a hundred hockey players call me randomly that knew me through the network saying, you know, JR, you're not that smart. You made a bunch of money. Um, can you help me break into your industry? And I did. And I saw, and I, and I was helping all my friends that were sales leaders hire these unreal candidates that went on to become AEs really quickly and move into leadership. Like a couple of those folks that I helped early in their career are now VPs of sales and CROs themselves. A lot of them were some of my early customers. So I knew that the, the model would work because I lived the model. I lived the model as an athlete coming out of sports and into sales and, and, you know, having the self-realization to apply the same mindset and attributes to it. And I think I knew that I could help people to have that realization. And then I also lived how hard it is to hire entry-level salespeople. The interview process is, is a few a few hours that you have to decide. And like, even though BDRs don't, don't make as much money as salespeople, it's still a six-figure bet between their compensation, their healthcare benefits, and the amount of training that you're going to give them and time you're going to dedicate to them. It's really expensive. So anything that you can do to de-risk that process, to me as a sales leader, is wildly valuable. And that's what we built. So, so when people ask me, like, why'd you start the company? I always tell them I started it for myself at 24 and myself at 34, because those are the two times in my life where I wish Shift Group existed. Um, and, and, and I think that's why we've had the success we've had is because it, I don't have to figure out our ICP. I don't need to you know, go interview people and ask them the challenges that they're having. I know the challenges they're having. I've had them my whole life. So I think that's what makes our, our offering really, really unique. Yeah, that's I love the work that you're doing um, and, uh, and, and fully supported and, and outside of just professional athletes, also helping veterans uh, break into sales as well. Um, you, you mentioned a minute ago about your salesperson and you put, you know, the same type of professionalism in that a pro athlete does, you can make the same type of money, which I agree with. I've seen it also. Um, when you say that same type of professionalism, what, what do you mean by that? So it's like go, going back to like all gas, no brakes, right? It's like, um, if you think about, you know, my, my brother played 13 years of pro hockey. Uh, and so he's just turned 36 on Monday. And, you know, when I look at his career, he, he took care of his body, right? He slept well. He, he mastered, like, you know, I stopped shooting 400 pucks a day when my hockey career was over. He kept shooting 400 pucks a day, like until he was 36 years old, right? He worked out every day. He, he ate healthy. He went to bed early when he had a game. Like he was so wide. He knew every single person on the other roster. He knew exactly where their D played. He knew what their power play looked like. He knew what their penalty kill looked like. So like anything that could have happened in a game, he was prepared for after the game, 
you know, he watched game tape and he broke it down and he figured out like where his weaknesses are, where, where was his strengths? What does he need to improve the next game? Right. And then you spend the the next three or four days practicing those things to then get back on the ice and compete again. Right. So now take away the hockey thing and now put that, put that same approach over sales. It's like, you know, you're, you're taking care of yourself. You're going to bed early. You're, you're, you're understanding the skills and the habits that you need to, to have in order to, to approach a customer and really understand their business, really become a subject matter expert in the problem that you solve, how you solve it uniquely, how much it's worth solving, the, the type of industry they're in, like reading their, their earnings report, like going in, just like my brother goes into a game against the, the Bruins playing for Ottawa Senators, going into a meeting with CVS with that same level of preparation and that same kind of confidence because you're taking care of yourself, because you're doing all the right things. And now, like, you know, I know what charity the CIO is on. I know, you know, what their CEO said about optimizing efficiencies on their earnings. Like, I'm just as prepared for that, like, 30-minute meeting as my brother is prepared for a three-hour um, a three-hour uh, hockey game in front of 30,000 people. And the outcome that I can drive, if I'm able to work CBS through the process, identify the right pain, get, get, you know, some influence on their decision criteria and have them purchase my technology. I'm going to make just as much money as my brother made as an NHL player. So it's like literally the parallels are, are so easy to explain because it is the same exact thing. It's just the difference is the skills, the habits and the processes that you're mastering and the goal that you're pursuing, but the actual mindset is exactly the same. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you mentioned, you know, back when you started in sales, like the, the there was pretty much no sales tools or, or tech, right? And so if if someone's listening to this and they're a rep and they have, you know, a tech like, you know, Gong, they have a tech like Outreach or Sales Loft or all these other things. Yes, that can make you more efficient. You know, you can send more emails with Outreach for sure. Um, but are you going back and are you are you seeing what your open rates are and your reply rates and how you can tweak things and get them better, right? Like, most sales reps now are using tech to do the job, but I don't think that many are going back and trying to improve their performance on that. And some are, and the ones that are, are the ones that have outsized, you know, commission checks and are hitting presidents club every year. And so that's the, that's the difference. That's the difference when I see, you know, um, I'm a, I'm a basketball fan and I see, uh, you know, LeBron and I'm not a LeBron fan, but I see him in his 20th year, like killing it is because he's really smart and he's taking care of his body and stuff like that. And there's, you know, thousands of other guys that, you know, uh, that, that can't do that. So, uh, it's just using the tools, using everything you have. Um, the question I wanted to ask you, this is maybe you could answer this to the extent that you feel comfortable, but you left, uh, so you, you were at Turbonomic for six ish years, something like that. Uh, had a CRO job. Um, I've never been a CRO, but I, I have a pretty good understanding of, uh, how much people make as well as how much, you know, how many hours go into it. Um, and you've been running your business now for 15 years. Uh, I mean, sorry, 15 months. Uh, and I'm curious in terms of like the finances, in terms of the fulfillment you have in your job and in terms of the work, you know, the effort of, of work that you put in, how would you compare what you're doing at shift group to your times of being a sales leader? I, so I think, um, 
one of the reasons I started my own company is because of the amount of effort I put in to the sales leader roles that I had, right? Like, like again, going back to all gas, no brakes. If I'm going to do something, I'm going all in. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be successful. That means long hours. That means getting up early, staying up late. It means, you know, doing whatever it takes to be successful. And I think the, the realization that I had was I'm doing that no matter what. I might as well do it where I create some enterprise value for myself instead of for investors and other founders, right? Um, th- so that that was huge. I will say financially for the last 15 months, I have not, I, I'm like back to, I'm back to BDR compensation yeah. uh, myself, right? I'm, I'm tr- taking all the, you know, we're bootstrapped company. We, we haven't raised a dollar. We're profitable, but I'm taking all the profit and putting it back into the business to continue to grow. I'm paying myself a little bit. I didn't pay myself for the first uh, basically nine months of the business. Um, and then, you know, basically my accountant was like, dude, you got to pay yourself. Like, this is crazy. Um, and so was my fiance I said the same thing. Um, so I am making money uh, and the company's making money, but the financial uh, is not, it's not the same. Like I, it's not even close. Um, the other thing is the emotional side of it that you asked about, right? Like yeah. I do find this way more fulfilling, not just because of what we're actually doing, which is like literally helping people change their lives and helping companies grow. Um, it is a lot more meaningful that, you know, working a 15 hour day means a lot more when you're working for yourself, right? Like I heard uh, Barbara from Shark Tank has this quote that she has where entrep- she says entrepreneurs are the only people in the world that will uh, will quit their 40-hour job so they can work a 100-hour job. <laughs> like, um, And it's definitely true, uh, but it's just a lot more rewarding knowing that what I'm building is mine. Um, it's also a lot more stressful because like as a CR, even as a CRO, you can point at other people. You could be like, the product sucks. You know, the CEO is making the bat, making wrong decisions, whatever. Um, I don't have anybody to blame for anything that happens to us. If we have a bad month, which we've had, it is 1000% on me, on my shoulders, and I need to figure out how to fix it. Um, so that stress is different than when you're a CRO or a VP of sales or a, a regional director where there's other things you can point at and excuses you can make. There's no excuses when you get get in on your own. It's like, you know, whether you do well or do do poorly, it's it's there's nobody to look at but the mirror. Yeah. I uh as being four months into you know running my own business, I I can uh I can relate to that. And a lot of just like waking up at two in the morning and uh it takes a while to get back to sleep, uh type of moments. I'd be curious, uh, just selfishly, how you, how do you handle that? Because if you're, if you are, there is a level of like stress that's just going to happen. You have to accept, but there's also, you know, I, I believe that if you are, if your mind is in like a a frantic state, you're not going to make the right decisions. You're not going to be able to play at your best. You're not going to be able to have the best conversations, make the best decisions. So how how do you go about like kind of balancing that out and like just keeping yourself, you know, sane? It comes down to like, and this is something that I used to, I used to teach um, my, my sales folks a lot, right? Like there's this image, it's a, I forget exactly what the word is called, but you know, like, I think it's called a Venn diagram when two circles kind of cross over each other. Um, And there's, and there's things that matter, right? In one circle. And there's things you can control 
in another circle. And the only thing that you can focus on when you're in a high pressure situation, like being an entrepreneur is like where those two things cross over where like things that matter that you can control. If, if you focus, you know, on just that crossover, the stress level is going to be controllable. Right. And, and there's a difference between stress and pressure, right? Pressure is a privilege. So like, you know, we're privileged, Tom, you and I, to have our own business and to be entrepreneurs. Um, so that pressure is good. Pre- pressure makes you perform. Stress comes when you start getting out of that middle circle and you start thinking about the things that matter that you can't control, like the economy, right? I started a sales, a technology sales recruiting company originally was what we were focused on during the biggest downturn since 2008 when I got out of school, right? So I, that was a lot of stress. There were not, there were days where I laid on the office floor and I'm like, I just got to go, I got to go find another CRO gig. Like this isn't going to work. Uh, but then you kind of have that self-awareness talk, you know, talk your a little self pep, pep talk to say, dude, you can't control that companies are firing people. They're cutting agencies. You know, they're not hiring. You just gotta, you gotta figure out a way around it. Right. So like realizing very quickly, what are the things that matter and what are the things that you can control and focusing on those things, right? I, I come from um, a, uh, a a recovery background. Like I've been sober um, for uh, 11 years. And one of the uh, prayers that they have in, in you know, a lot of recovery uh, is, you know, having the power to understand what you can control and what you can't control and and having the the self awareness to know the difference, um, that's really what what stri- what my stress control and 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 like relief looks like is reminding myself what matters, what can I control, just focus on that. All everything else is noise. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, all right, I want to hit you with a couple rapid fires before I let you go, Jr. Um, Love it. So uh, the first one is, I'm a big reader big fan of books. I'm not sure if you are or not. We haven't talked about that, but if you are, I'd love to hear any that have, you know, severely impacted you, uh, as a person, you know, it could be as a, as a business person, but just as a person, uh, or if that nothing comes to mind, then just anything you've read recently that you'd recommend. No, one of my, my favorite book, uh, one of my favorite books is called extreme ownership by Jocko Wilnick. Um, I've read it multiple times. I read it when I was a sales leader and it, and it really was like an eye opening experience where, because I, I, you know, like, like many people, I, I got the victim, the victimhood status going on, on in tough years or tough quarters where I wanted to blame everybody else for, you know, challenges we're having. And like, at the end of the day, right. Like, you know, being a victim is, is not a good mindset to have. Right. So what this book is all about is the idea that like you have to have accountability for whatever outcomes you're driving. At the end of the day, you can't blame other people. Even if you're not in that top like founder CEO role, if somebody tells you to do something and you do it, then that's on you, right? You You need to have ownership of the things that are told for you to do and the things that you tell people to do and the things that you do yourself. Um, and that was a life-changing book, book for me. And and I'm probably going to read it again this summer. Mm. Have you ever seen his, uh, good YouTube video? 
Yeah, he's a stud. He's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, he's great. Um, Okay, what goes on in the in the J.R. Butler headphones music wise? (laughs) Oh, nineties rap, dude. I'm a I'm I'm you know the scientifically so scientifically the music that is has the biggest emotional response on you. You can Google this. Is when you're 14 years old, Um, and I was I was 14. Uh, in like night from like 1996 to like 1998, like those two years. So like Tupac, Biggie, um, like those are my guys, like all the nineties, all the nineties rap stuff I is, is on repeat. Um, I'm getting married in September and like, I'm like recommending all these songs for like our walkout. My fiance, my fiance is like, we're not like we're not having notorious B.I.G. as our walkout song, J.R. I literally, I, I, I have two dogs. One of my dogs' name is Biggie. So I'm a 90s rap rap kid. I always will be a 90s rap kid. I don't like the current rap music and, and anything new that comes out. I just have 90s rap on repeat. Even though I'm I'm a number of years younger than you, uh, I'm the same way. I must have just been listening to that when I was 14. Uh, so you're telling me that Ain't no G thing is not going to be your like first dance song at the wedding. Does that not get? No, 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 she's not. She's not letting it fly, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. Um, What is uh, what's one thing that you do, you know, outside of work to just like keep your keep your head right, you know, refocus, relax a little bit. What what, what are some things you like to do? Golf, for sure. Mm -hmm. Golf is like, uh, you know, I I just started playing when I was like 27. When I stopped drinking, I, I woke up. Literally, I'll never forget. I woke up on like a Saturday at 7 a.m., you know, completely like not hungover, probably for like one of the first times in my life. Um, and I called my dad and I'm like, dude, I'm like, what do people do like on the weekend in the morning? <laughs> like if they're not like going to go out and like, you know, Southie on Broadway and just drink all day. And he, and he said he's like, literally, he's like, you should he's like, you should try golfing. It's like pretty awesome. And and I love it because it's like competitive. Um, it's something that I can see myself get better at. I can practice it. Um, you know, and I'm a, I'm a bit of a gambler and I like, I like, I like betting on myself and in golf, you get to bet on yourself. So, um, it's, uh, that's my, my number one hobby hands down. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, all right. My last one for you is who is one person that you'd like to see come on this podcast? You should get, um, it's millennial sales podcast, right? So like you like to get millennials? Not, I mean, not necessarily. I've had people outside of that scope for sure. I guess that's just, uh, that's just what I am. So no, no, uh, no restrictions. If you could, you should get John Kaplan from uh, Force Management. He's unreal. He's, he's on, uh, he does the Revenue Builders podcast that I, that I was on. Yeah. You told me about that one and he does it yeah. with John McMahon and that's uh his book is one of my favorite sales books ever, The Qualified Sales Leader. Yep, yep. I know John really well. And that book is, that is another one that everybody should absolutely read, 100%. All right, John Kaplan, you're on my prospecting list. I'll be cold calling you in uh, 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> uh, JR, before I let you go, man, this has been awesome. Uh, I love learning more about your story. Just want to give you a moment to, to, to talk about like where people can find you, where they can learn more about Shift Group. Uh, I know just today or, or yesterday, you announced like a new platform uh, that you guys are, are putting out there too. So I'll, I'll give you the floor. Yeah, just uh, our website is just www.shiftgroup.io. Um, and I'm also like a pretty, I'm a pretty good follow on LinkedIn because I don't have much of a filter um, because I, I'm not worried about getting fired. 
So like I tend to call people out on their bullshit on LinkedIn. So if you enjoy that, uh, my friends call me the LinkedIn Batman. Um, so I'm a good follow, just JR Butler on LinkedIn. Uh, but yeah, our website. And then if you're an athlete or a veteran, it's pretty easy to, to go find how you can sign up. And if you're a company, it's really easy to go find out how you can sign up. Um, and the platform is going to be going to be sick. Yeah. The, the LinkedIn Batman, you should you should trademark that. Uh, <laughs> awesome, man. I appreciate you coming on. I definitely recommend everyone listening. Check out the shift group or tell someone that you think would be a good uh, good fit that's trying to transition uh, into sales. Definitely go follow the LinkedIn Batman on LinkedIn because I, I can uh, vouch for uh, for the content there. And uh, JR, appreciate you coming on, man. This was great. Thanks for having me, Tom.